Verse 37, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Basically, it does not mean do not judge people. You should be making judgments all the time. There's times where I will go to my daughters and I will say, these are not good people to hang out with. That's a judgment. When people are like, don't you judge me. Christ said, don't judge. That's not what he was talking about. Okay? What he's saying is don't judge and condemn people. Don't judge and condemn people. Basically what he's saying here is the way that you treat people is the way you'll be treated back in return. If you're condemning people and demanding your pound of flesh, if you're refusing to forgive people and try to love them, then you, you will be treated the same way. Given it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over and be poured into your lap. For the measure you use will be measured you receive. This is basically saying that ultimately it's not up to you to make sure that you have what you need. It is up to God. If you live the radical life that Christ has lived, and the world takes and takes and takes and takes from you. Ultimately, the trust is, do you believe that God will provide for you? Or do you feel like if you do not fight for what you need and what you want, then you will never have anything? Or do you believe that you can live sacrificially and radically and God will give you what you need and what you want? Once again, it all comes down to faith, not ethics, not right behavior, not this is what you do in every specific scenario of life, but I'm trusting God and I'm following his lead. He also told in this parable, someone who is blind cannot lead another who is blind. Can he? Won't they both fall into a pit? A disciple is not greater than his teacher, but everyone when fully trained will be like his teacher. The point is the blind can't lead the blind. And what he's talking about is the Pharisees. They're the blind. You want to keep going to the Pharisees? Have they made your life better as you followed their teachings? This is what I tell my students all the time when we start talking about dating and marriage and the family. And they're like, and I'm telling them, like, I'm not, I, I'm pretty anti dating. I don't think there's really any benefit at your age to dating. Now, yes, can you point to some exceptions of people who dated in high school and college or when in preschool ended up marrying? Yes. But will they tell you that everything was completely hunky-dory during all those early ages? No. Was there lots of baggage that they had to work through because they started at such a young age? Yes. But through the grace of God and their commitment to the right thing and their commitment to their vows, did they make it work? Yes. So no, you can point to some exceptions, but you act like it was a dream for them all the time. Marriage is never a dream, no matter when you start. So I'm like, I'm anti-dating, here's why. And they're like, but Mr. Bakker, people do this all the time. My parents are always talking about who am I dating. They're pushing this. And I was like, but the divorce rate over 60%. Would you be willing to at least admit that we're doing something wrong? And the divorce rate is that high. And then most people have decided that sex is better than marriage now in this new generation. Would you be willing to admit that we're not what we have done in the way that we've thought is not right? And would you be willing to at least hear out an alternate way of doing things? You don't have to embrace it in the end, but would you be willing to be open-minded when the statistics are not working in our favor with the old way of doing things? And that's what Jesus is saying. Have the Pharisees led you to life? Do you really want to continue to follow the blind as blind? 
Or are you willing to sit down and really honestly think about the worldview that I'm presenting to you? Is it going to be difficult? Heck yes. Is it going to be challenging? Yes. Is the Christian life possible? Heck no. The Christian life is the most impossible, ridiculous thing that you can ever do in your entire life. And it will never, you will never be able to do it. That's why he has to die on the cross for you and give you the Holy Spirit. And this is what he's telling them. Will you be willing to sit here on this plane for about a day and just be open-minded that the old way hasn't been working out for you? It has not brought you contentment and peace and hope. And just, just be open-minded and hear a new view out. Now, maybe he said a little bit more sternly than that, but that's the idea. Because you are never greater than your teacher. You're never wiser than your teacher. But eventually, one day, you'll go out and you can do what your teacher has done. But it requires learning first. It requires sitting at the feet of Christ first. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but fail to see the beam of wood in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, while yourself don't see the beam in your own eye? You hypocrite, first remove the beam from your own eye, and then you can clearly see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Notice that unlike the world who quotes this to people and says, don't judge and do not try to pull the speck out of your neighbor's eye, it does not at all say that. It says, first remove the beam and then you can go after your neighbor, so to speak. What it says is look at your own life first. Check your heart. Are you going to them in judgment and condemnation? Look at me, I'm better than you. Meanwhile, they're looking, you're like, what? You're just as bad. Or are you really introspective and saying, why am I doing this? Is it for their benefit or is it for my benefit? Am I willing to acknowledge it? There are times that I've gone to people, like my own daughter, and like, you've got a frustration, anger problem. Now, don't get me wrong. You probably learned it from me and I apologize for that. And I'm willing to admit that I have my own issues. But will you be willing to work on this together? That's what he's calling you to. All these statements are saying is, do you see the people as people? Are you looking behind the, beyond the behavior? Are you looking beyond the actions? Are you work, looking beyond the crazy liberal view that they have or the crazy conservative view that they have? Yes, you have every right to have your opinion and think that that's not a correct view. Yes, you have every right according to the law to say that's not godly behavior. Yes, you have every right to say that there are consequences for those kind of actions. But are you willing to look beyond that deeper into the heart of the human and realize that there's something more there? And that that way we've been called to. That's what he, this, all this is just different ways of saying the same thing. Go beyond the behavior. Go beyond the crazy way of thinking. And go to the heart of who they are. And because basically everybody is operating out of a fear or wound. Every human has been wounded and they have created what's called guardians. Behaviors that will guard them and protect them from being wounded like that again. We all have wounds and we all have established guardians in our life. 
And the guardians can be anything from a lie that you've bought into, that I'm not worthy, nobody will ever like me, so that you don't have to go ever out and hang out with people and then be rejected again and feel that wound again. It can be anything to the medication that you're eating all this sugar or watching television or drinking to escape being wounded and really feeling it. We all have guardians in different ways because we have a fear that we'll be wounded again. And what Jesus is saying is, find that. Go beyond the behavior. Go behind the crazy thinking. Find the wound and become the doctor. This has been a very hard lesson for me to learn in my life. That people are mostly operating out of wounds. Even the crazy dictator is operating out of wounds. And they're just protection mechanisms. I had this friend, two friends, and the one friend was doing something he shouldn't do, and the other friend was going to call him out on it. And one of the things that I have never forgotten how he said it is that when he went up to his friend, he said, I know that you're probably going to hate me for doing this, and I know that you may not be my friend anymore after this, because I know you well enough, and I know what you're doing, and I know how you've treated other people, and I realize that this might actually ruin our relationship. But I love you more than I love our relationship. And I thought that was like one of the most wise, powerful things that I've heard. Like, I'm saying this to you because I love you and I don't want you to end up down that road. Not because I'm judging you and condemning you. Because if I was afraid, if I valued my right and my relationship with you, then I would ignore it like all these other people are. And I would just put up with it because I'm too scared of rejection. And it was powerful. And actually, my friend ended up saying it was that statement that actually changed him more than anything else he ever said. It wasn't all the other things he said. It wasn't all the things that everybody else had said to him. He ignored those, and he justified it. But it was that statement. That was the only thing he remembered of what that person said. Now, I'm not saying that's a magical wand to change people, but I'm just saying that that's a powerful statement. I'm saying, I'm looking at the speck in your eye because I care about you and what that's doing to you. Even though you can find a lot of those in my own eye. That's the spirit that Christ is calling you to. Verse 43, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorns, nor are grapes picked from brambles good person out of the good treasury of his heart produces good and evil person out of the evil treasury of his heart produces evil for this his mouth speaks from what his fills his heart now this makes it very clear that whatever you're pouring into your life on a constant basis is what's going to come out and this is what drives me nuts when people say well the things i'm watching and the things i'm listening to do not affect me and i'm like one all the psychology says you're wrong. Two, all the billions of dollars that are poured into media says you're wrong. And three, you just call Jesus a liar. And that's the most important one. But I like to go to those other ones first and catch you off guard on the third one. Pay attention to what you're filling yourself with because that's what ultimately will come out. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I tell you? This is where he makes it very clear. Do not view me as a great teacher. I'm not coming here to be your great teacher. 
I'm here as your Lord, your master. And if you really truly are going to submit to me and bow down to me, then that means you do what I tell you to do. I have presented a new worldview to me, you. You either acknowledge that I'm Lord and embrace it, or admit that you don't want to and walk away from me. Everyone who comes to me and listens to my words and puts them into practice, I will show you what he is like. He is a man building a house, dug down deep, and lay the foundation on the bedrock. And when a flood came, the river burst against it, the house, but it could not shake it, because it had been well built. But the person who hears and does not put my words into practice is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. And when the river burst against that house, it collapsed immediately and was utterly destroyed. Now, Matthew's Beatitudes, Matthew's discussion of the law, Matthew's discussion on correct kingdom way of thinking and loving people is much longer. Luke summarizes a lot more. And, and it's okay for him to do that because you don't need a long dissertation to get the point that he's basically saying, don't go after your own rights and look deeper to the heart of the person than just to their behavior for him to make the point. But he ends basically saying this. Now that you realize the blind have been leading you along and your life hasn't gotten better, now that you've been open-minded that I have maybe some valid things to say, the question is, what are you going to do about it now? So he presents them with, blessed are you who are in need. Because if you reach out to your Savior, you'll have life. Woe to you who do not see your need. You have a need, but you don't see it. Because you will not reach out to your Savior, and you will get what you have now. Then he says, so, are you willing to listen to my new worldview? Not new in the world, but new to you. It hasn't been working out for you. Listen. And he goes in, and he says, People who demand their rights constantly all the time, they're not happy. They're not content. When they're not generous to people and they always want to get things back all the time and they're always keeping scores and making sure that the ledgers are balanced, when they've built this great wealth and empire, go listen to the interviews of celebrities. They're not happy. They're miserable. Their lyrics even show that. It hasn't been working out for them. They demand their rights all the time. They constantly want to make sure that, that what they did for this person. Remember when you watch the movies and they're like, why are you helping this person? Because I owe him a debt from Nam, And now I've got to pay it back. And they're like, oh, if I do this for you, are we even now? That's not love. You literally had each other's backs in Nam, And you were like fighting for each other and sacrificing your life. And then now you come back from Nam after, after that great bond. And it now comes down to debts and ledgers and being balanced. Has it really made your life better? Do you really feel content and happy? Do you like it when people don't look at your deeper wounds and just judge you and condemn you and throw the book at you and walk away? When they don't see you as something more than just the behavior that you did? Do you realize that these people need something more than just judgments? These are the two things I'm calling you to. Don't constantly demand your rights. Don't constantly demand that you have the good life now. Don't constantly demand justice instantaneous at the expense of relationships. 
And then when you're in relationships, don't constantly just focus on the behavior to the exclusion of the heart of the person and what you could possibly be doing to change them, to love them, to reach out to them. If you're willing to sacrifice your own comfort, if you're willing to sacrifice your own preconceived ideas and judgments, then God will open up an entire world to you of fruitfulness. Because the people that you're listening to, the media, this world religion, this philosophy, who could just constantly shove behaviorism and balance judges down your ledges, ledgers, down your throat constantly, that's not going to lead to a good life. And you will end up becoming a bitter, angry man. Like Clint Eastwood in Gran Torino sitting on his front porch. But if you fill yourself with the word of God, the love of God, the true purpose of the law, what I have come to do, the example that I've set before you where I've looked deeper into the hearts of tax collectors and sinners and saw wounds and I've tried to heal those and forgive their sins, which then actually ends up healing their sinful behavior, then you will have life. You will be filled with life. You will be filled with compassion. People will be attracted to that and they'll come to you and you'll have fruit in your life and not thistles and thorns. If you really truly listen to me, and really truly put this into practice to the cost of your own comfort and your own freedom sometimes, but to the great wealth of your contentment and satisfaction and peace and hope, then you're like the wise man who's building your house on the rock and you will last for all eternity. Even though there will be storms and the governments and the economy and the haters will come at you and they will attack you, but you will stand. But if you walk away and you say, this is dumb, or this is too radical, or my goodness, you don't know what they're like. The Pharisees have actually, I think they're pretty cool. Then you're like the foolish man who builds your house in the sand. And when the day of judgment comes, or when people attack you and they naysay you, you will collapse under suicidal depression and hopelessness and ultimately the judgment of God. You've seen the result of this. And in the words of Moses, on his Sermon on the Mount, I have laid before you life and death. Now you choose. Now, in closing, what is the rock? The rock is Christ. All throughout the First Testament, when I was in high school class, they had this, like, Moses striking the rock, and it was this, like, nice little boulder there, and he struck it, and this little drinking fountain thing of water comes out, and I was like, oh, this is so cool, it's flannel graph. Then you get older and you realize... There was like 7,800,000 people there. That's a very long line for the drinking fountain, especially with the animals. And then I got older and started learning Greek and Hebrew and actually had to do all those fun, enjoyable word studies. And you start doing word studies and you realize the word rock is a cliff. I talked about this in the book of Exodus way back in the day. It was a cliff. It was a mountain. And from that point on, the rock became associated with God. He is the rock. And all throughout the Psalms, you build yourself into the rock, the mountainside. That that mountain is not going to collapse in the storms. Your house is there. The psalmist says, I hide myself in the cleft of the rock, and I am safe from the storms around me. You are my refuge. You are my rock, God. This is the rock. 
And it becomes synonymous with God after the Exodus incident with Moses. And the Psalms develop it in a great extent. And it becomes a shield. It becomes a refuge. God puts Moses into the rock and shows him the glory of God. And it changes him drastically. And so it's an image of sanctification and an altering of perspective. It's, it's refuge, it's protection, it's, it's stability, it's everything. And it's only found in Christ. And so Christ then comes in God. It's only found in Yahweh. So Christ comes along and says, that's the rock I'm talking about. I'm not talking about a good slab of concrete that you poured in your backyard rock. I'm talking about you build your house into the mountainside. That's what's going to survive any storm. I'm talking about the fact that the walls of Jericho fell, but Rahab's house stayed. I'm talking about that rock. Those who build into that rock. And of course, he is that. Well, then later he comes to Peter and he says, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, the Catholics interpret that as it's Peter, because Peter is the Greek word Petros, which means rock. And he's saying, on this rock, I will build my church. You honestly think after all of the theology and worldviews and everything that the Bible has ever taught and all the teachings of Christ, that he's going to build the church, the eternal corporate living body of Christ on a human. Now, to bore you with grammar, there's this thing called a near demonstrative and a remote demonstrative. A near demonstrative is this, okay, and these. It's really close to you. A remote demonstrative is that and those that are further away from you. In the Greek, it's a near demonstrative, which basically means on this rock, on me, I will build my church. And you also know it is that grammatically and theologically from the Bible. But when Peter comes along and decides to write his epistle, in chapter 2 he says that Christ is the living rock. And we are all built into it as living stones. He is the cornerstone. So Peter, who heard that and was face to face with Jesus, he interpreted the rock as Jesus and actually wrote an entire chapter about Jesus the rock. And this is the point that Jesus is making. You're either going to build your life in me, who is Yahweh, who has stood the test of time, or you can build on these Pharisees over there. And they're jacked up interpretations that made them wealthy and powerful and oppressed you. Today, do you want to follow the media and the worldviews and all those religions out there that lead to your absorption and your non-existence and where you have to work it all out yourself and it's all up to you saving yourself because that all works out well. The media who constantly cannot figure out who they're for and what they're saying constantly. Do you want to follow the example of TikTok and Twitter? And I know that's not all of you, but it's amazing how many adults are really into that. Because that hasn't led us. Look at our culture right now. Are we thriving in life? Or do you want to build yourself into things that are tested and tried and true over time? But if you do, and you call me Lord, then you have to live it. And that means as Americans, including myself, who are very used to a comfortable life, it might mean giving up our rights. It might mean not fighting to the death for them. It might mean our comfort is gone. It might mean trusting in something more than the American dream. And that is scary, absolutely scary. 
to be honest. But I'm also at the age where I know it's right. And now the question is, do you have the courage? And some of you have already been doing that. And some are yet to. But this is where we pray Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my anxious thoughts. Test me and see if there's any offensive way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. That is the Sermon on the Mount. And that is the main point that Christ is trying to communicate. And we can go into all the like the behaviorism and the ethic teachings, and I've heard many sermons on that. But I think that's missing the point. And granted, I'm just one person in the grand scheme of things, but I think that the point was way more than just behaviorism and getting liberation theology into the poor. I think it was a radical call to us thinking about people and about God's justice and about comfort in a completely different way.